The scripture reading for this morning is from the book of Judges, chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then twenty-two thousand of the people returned, and ten thousand remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them there for you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. Let's go before the Lord and pray. Jesus Christ, you are the Lord of heaven and earth, and as we were sitting there singing that song and praying, I just saw the vision that the author of Hebrews would have us see of you seated at the right hand of the throne of God in all of your glory and all of your might with tremendous joy, tremendous pleasure, tremendous power, ruling heaven and earth, ruling the nations, ruling neighborhoods, ruling over hearts, ruling over subatomic particles, ruling everything. And I just take so much peace and joy in the fact, Lord, that you are in control. And I pray that you would come now and teach us by your word the lesson that because you are faithful, your covenant is unbreakable. I pray that you would teach us in the deepest places of our hearts that our faithfulness to you is really about your faithfulness to us. And I pray that you would teach us to surrender our lives to you today. Lord, we're going to look at a man who's really a tragic figure at the end of the day but he will lead us to look at our beautiful Savior. And I pray that the sight of you at the end of this message would be the thing that sticks with us and guides us and transforms us and glows in us and glows through us for the glory of your name and the joy of our souls and the good of everybody around us. So please, Holy Spirit, come now and do a work in us by your word and by your promises. I pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Darkness had fallen over the valley of Jezreel and Gideon was encamped with his micro army on the top of Mount Gilead. Down in the valley, there lay many thousands of Israel's enemies from the east. They were people who had raided and robbed and raped Israel for seven straight years and they were preparing even now to plunder them yet again. 
Israel's enemies were led by the Midianites, and they were in fact so numerous that the Bible says that they were like locusts in abundance, and that their camels were beyond counting, even like the sand of the seashore. Unless the Lord himself intervened, beloved, Israel was about to be slaughtered in the battle that was soon to come, and in fact they may even be annihilated. Even, or when the moment was just right, the Lord spoke to Gideon and said this in chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. Gideon, arise and go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you're afraid to go down, then go down to the camp with Purah, your servants, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. It would have been better for Gideon to trust the Lord and just go down and take that army by faith in his God, but he was understandably afraid. I would have been very afraid of the massive army that was spread out beneath him. And so he accepted God's gracious offer, and he snuck down toward the camp with his servant, Purah. Soon enough, they came to a safe hiding place where they could hear what was going on inside the camp filled with soldiers who were sleeping. And almost as soon as they arrived, one of the soldiers woke up from his slumber and told his fellow soldier about a dream that he had just had. It was a very strange dream. As he dreamed, he saw this huge cake of barley bread rolling down the hill and coming into the Midianite camp. And this bread had gotten so much momentum that it hit one of the tents in the Midianite camp and it turned it upside down and left it laying completely flat. And with that, the dream was over. The soldier woke up. He woke up his friend and said, I got to tell you about a dream that I just had. And his comrade, upon hearing this dream, was struck to the heart and said in verse 14 with bated breath, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of this dream and he heard the interpretation, the Bible says that he worshipped God. And I imagine in my mind's eye that he fell to his face and worshipped God with extreme gratefulness and extreme joy. Just a couple days earlier, after he obeyed the command of God and destroyed the altar of Baal where his kinsmen worshipped a false god. Gideon was clothed with the spirit of God and he gathered as many troops as he could from central Israel and he purposed to fight against their seven-year-long oppressors. But before he marched into that battlefield, he drew aside with the Lord and he sought the Lord and he asked for not one but two signs that God had indeed called him and that God was indeed with him. If you were here last week, you remember that God had already given Gideon one sign of these things, but now Gideon was right on the edge of marching thousands of people into what was sure to be a fierce battle, and he was cracking under the weight of the knowledge that if he did this in his flesh, he was going to lead thousands of his kinsmen into a needless death, and he just could not do that without being sure that he was sure that he was sure. And so Gideon brought his doubts to God. He brought his anxiety to God. He brought his questions to God, and God did not rebuke him. Rather, the Lord God of Israel in grace and mercy granted one sign and then another sign to to Gideon over a period of two days, which brought us to a count of three signs. Three signs, perfect confirmation, and the Lord was about to deliver his people from enemies who were far, far too strong for them. The very next morning, 
Gideon and his army carefully marched to the edge of the valley, and they encamped by the spring of Herod, which, by the way, still exists in that valley today. I encourage you, as I did last week, to Google those words, the the spring of Herod, not during church, but after church, and you will see it. And when you see it, you'll know that that's the place where Gideon camped, and I pray that you will do that, and God will help you understand that this story is real and not a fable. At this place, Gideon lied just to the south of his enemy and wait for them, and yet before he could make a move, the Lord spoke to him in verse 2 and following, and he said this, Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Why? Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand saved me. So it seems that God knew the wicked hearts of his people as well as he knew the strength of his hand, and he wanted to do anything he could for the good of his people to remove boasting from their mouths, and so he had to thin out the army. And he said, therefore, Gideon, listen, tell anybody who is afraid, and a lot of them will be afraid. This is an unbelievable battle they're facing right now. It is an impossible battle they're facing right now. This army that they're opposed against has defeated them roundly seven years in a row, and it will oppress them cruelly for seven straight years. And so many will be afraid. If they are afraid, let them go. Gideon obeyed the Lord, and over two-thirds of his army forsook the battlefield. Can you imagine being in his place, knowing the odds are already stacked against you, and you watch 22,000 men walk away? That's what happened to Gideon. He was left with 10,000 men to come against the force that the Bible itself says could not be counted. So from human terms, the odds were not good. But from God's point of view, the odds were still too good. And so he said, Gideon, you still have too many people. The army is just too big for me to do what it is that I want to do. So do this. Take the men right down by the water, and I'm going to give you something to do. And as they do that, I'm going to separate the men even more for you. And Gideon was probably confused, but one way or the other, he obeyed the Lord. He brought his men down to the water right by the brook that you can see online today. And God said to him, let's do this. Ask the men to drink, and everybody who takes water in their hand and laps it like a dog, put them in one group, and everybody else who gets down on their knees and puts their face in the water and drinks that way, put them in another group. Now, some people think that, that, that there was more merit in one way of drinking than another and that God was separating the men based on their skills as a warrior, but all the commentaries I read and in the searchings of my own heart, I don't think that that's the case at all. I think this was just sort of a little bit of a silly, funny, arbitrary way for God to separate the army. He could well have said, listen, Gideon, have everybody comb their hair, and everybody who starts on the right side, put them in one, to, in one group, and everybody who starts on the left side, put them into another group. He could have done anything. The point was not how he separated them or why he separated them. The point was that God was trying to teach his people this. He was strong enough to defeat any army on the planet by himself. He could do it with his eyes closed, his hands tied behind his back, and 10 million other things on his mind at once. This army, as strong as it was in the face of Israel, was nothing for God. And so he found some way to separate the people. And bottom line is, Gideon's left with 300 guys now. And the Lord says, send the 9,700 home. I'm going to use these 300 guys to do an amazing thing. And I will get the glory for it, all of the glory. So with that, 9,700 more men went home. 
And as they left, they left all of their provisions for the remaining men and they gave them all the the trumpets that they could carry back to the top of Mount Gilead where Gideon and his men looked down and saw the army that was below. I cannot imagine what was going through Gideon's mind at this point. He's like, great. I was here 24 hours ago with with 32,000 people. Now I'm left with 300 guys and a bunch of trumpets. Wonderful. How's this going to work? That very night, God spoke to him. And I praise God that he did. The Lord told Gideon to go down and strike the camp. And when Gideon went down and heard the dream of that Midianite soldier, his heart was so encouraged, his heart was so filled with joy, he bowed down and worshipped God because he knew that God was going to keep his promises. That's what made him worship. He knew that God was with him. He knew that by the brook, God had spoken to him. He knew that with that fleece, God had spoken to him time and again. He knew that God was faithful and his heart was filled with joy. And so he did exactly as God instructed him to do. He returned to the camp of Israel. He commanded the army to rise up and go down against the Midianites. He divided the 300 men into three companies and he did this. He put trumpets into every one of their hands into their right hand, and then into their left hand, he put some kind of torch with a jar on top of it, which would conceal the light of the torch. And then he instructed them only to do this. He said, listen, men, you do exactly what you see me doing it, exactly when you see me doing it. And with that, Gideon set out with his hundred men, and he sent the two other troops in two different directions so that they, in a sense, surrounded the army of the Midianites, that is. It was the dead middle of the night. The Midianite guards were just transitioning from one team to another, and Gideon chose that exact moment where they were a little bit unfocused and perhaps a little bit more confusable. He chose that exact moment to rise up with his men, and there in the dark, they began blowing their hundred trumpets as loud as they could, and they threw their jars to the ground and broke them so that suddenly a hundred lights began shining in the darkness, and as soon as this happened, the two other troops in two other parts of the camp did the same thing. They began to blow 200 trumpets as loud as they could and they cast aside their jars and now 300 lights were blazing in the dark and the Midianites were scared to death. This in fact shocked them out of their deep sleep and in their confusion as they woke up they assumed that they were absolutely surrounded and they went into a panic and they began to flee randomly probably in every direction with no leadership and no sense of what was actually happening. They were completely disoriented and because it was dark they could not see and therefore they did not know who was for them and who was against them and in this way God used their confusion to turn them in on themselves and they actually killed thousands and thousands and thousands of their own soldiers. They didn't know that they were killing their own comrades. As the remains of the army fled further and faster, Gideon called upon the tribes of central Israel who eventually joined in the pursuit of these enemies. These tribes experienced some immediate success by the hand of God, but the battle wasn't quite over because two of the main leaders of Midian had escaped over the Jordan River to the east with about 15,000 soldiers. Gideon had it in his heart to pursue these people, but one of the tribes of Israel, Ephraim, accused him fiercely about things that they did not understand and they nearly derailed the victory that God had intended to give that day. But beloved, 
The purposes of the Lord cannot be stopped, no matter how many grumblers rise up to oppose the Lord. And so he gave the the Gideon wisdom, which calmed the anger of this tribe of Israel, after which Gideon set out to do the will of God. He set out to cross the Jordan and pursue these kings who deserved to be put to death for their many, many, many crimes. I'm very struck by the language of chapter 8, verse 4, so if you'll please look there with me. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over to the east. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. That phrase, exhausted yet pursuing, just really jumped out at me as I've been studying this text. These men were worn out from doing the will of God, but beloved, they were determined to finish doing the will of God. They had won a great victory by the presence and power and promises of God, but there were more victories to be had, and they simply could not stop until the job was done. They were exhausted, but they were pursuing. And I think that this little phrase has a lot of potential to help us in our lives because I don't know about you, but I know often I feel like that myself. I feel often exhausted from doing the will of my Father, but I keep on feeling propelled by His grace to pursue yet more and more and more. I get tired of seeking God in my flesh, but in my spirit something cries out and says, press on, Son of God, press on. You're exhausted, but keep pursuing. And by the grace of God, by the power of God, you will overcome. And I see this kind of faith in these men. They could easily have rested on their laurels. They just won an unbelievable battle. They could have just stopped there, but there was more to be done. And so even though they were exhausted, they kept on pursuing. And so Gideon and his men, tired as they were, sought refreshment from some of the people who lived on the eastern side of the Jordan, but those people refused to help. And so Gideon and his men just went on in faith alone and they discovered that God keeps his promises no matter how weary the soul of the believer is. And in this way, they succeeded in capturing the two remaining kings of Midian and they threw the remaining army of 15,000 people into such a panic that they were either destroyed or dispersed. And in this way, eight years of oppression finally came to an end and a terrible enemy was finally defeated. And after this final battle, those who, uh, they punished those who refused to help them earlier They put these kings to death and they surely celebrated the miraculous victory that was just granted them by the greatness and the grace of God. It's hard for me to find a way to help us feel how important a victory this was in the life of Israel. And I brought this up a couple weeks ago, but I just can't think of a better metaphor for us to kind of grab hold of what it might have felt like. But this was much like the day when the Allies finally put the Nazis to rest and finally defeated them. Not just the day when Hitler was killed, but the day when the war was over, V-Day. The famous day where we see all the videos and all of America, indeed most of the world, was rejoicing that our enemies had been put down. This was what it was like for Israel. By the grace and greatness, the power, the promises of God, they were able to put to end an enemy who was way too strong for them. They were incredibly grateful to God and they were incredibly grateful to Gideon. And so understandably, the men of Israel wanted to make Gideon their king that day. And in fact, they wanted to establish a dynasty through his family. They wanted his son to be the next king and his son to be the next king. But Gideon was surely moved by the Spirit of God and he said, No, no, Israel, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you because the Lord himself will rule over you. You know how these words 
must have thrilled the, God, the heart of God because at least for the moment it seems like Gideon had got the point. It seems like Gideon understood that God's vision for Israel was that he would, they would worship him with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength and that he would rule them as their God. They would be his people. He would be their king. He would be their priest. He would be their prophet. He would be their God. They did not need to be like all of the other nations of the world. They did not need an earthly king. They were God's people, and he was able to take care of them. He was able to administer justice among them. He was able to save them from their enemies. After several judges had ruled it in Israel, it seemed like we have finally come upon a judge who gets it and who's going to lead Israel in the way that they should go. Perhaps he'll lead them in that way permanently. But as soon as these faith-filled words come out of his mouth, a bunch of tragic words follow right along. So please look with me in chapter 8, verse 24. Gideon said to them, to Israel, he had just said, nope, I'm not going to be your king. The Lord's going to be your king. Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. So they had taken a lot of spoil from the war. Gideon's saying, give me all these earrings. For the golden earrings, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So just to help you understand, the people they had just defeated, the way that these people gathered wealth was to gather jewelry and such like things. They were a nomadic people. They would travel from one place to another. And the way that they would barter and do business in the world was with all this jewelry. So since Israel had defeated the Midianites, they came into a lot of money, if you will. They came into a lot of gold. And so Gideon's asking for the gold. And they answered, we will willingly give them to you. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in its earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, which is a lot, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, so he's even acquiring the, the royal garb of the king, and besides the collars that were put around the necks of their camels. So these are like royal camels, and they're, they're richly adorned. These things now belong to Gideon. And tragically, here's what Gideon does with this. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Orphra. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land rest, had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. So what's going on here. I believe that after this victory, Gideon had it in his heart to honor God. I think that his heart was right in that sense. But here's the problem. Gideon did not seek the Lord Gideon, more importantly, did not search out the word of the Lord to carefully inquire as to what it said, and Gideon did not carefully ensure that he was actually doing the will of God. Rather, he did the will of his flesh. Gideon chose to follow the affections of his own heart, and in so doing, he created a new form of idolatry in Israel, and it was a horrible form of idolatry. He created something that appeared to give glory to God, that appeared to be about the one true God, that appeared to direct people to God. But in fact, it was an idolatrous bootleg of what God had commanded and desired. Under the leadership of Moses, God was very clear 
that an ephod should be made for the high priest of Israel alone. And the ephod was just a vestment that kind of went over the priest as a vest, had a front part and a back part. And only the high priest was supposed to wear this thing. And he was only supposed to wear it at certain times and for certain reasons. And this ephod was part of a larger sacrificial system that God had created in order to mediate between a holy God and an unholy people. He was trying to make a way for sinful people to have a relationship with the one true God, and he prescribed very specific ways in which this should happen. Beloved, we need to learn this in the depth of our hearts, that God alone has the right to dictate how he is to be approached, and we do not have the right to adjust the will or the word of God to suit our own pleasures. I read a quote from Charles Spurgeon recently where he said, we will not adjust the word of God to our times. We will seek to adjust our times to the word of God. And he's right. God has spoken and that settles it. And God requires that we submit to his commands. And if we submit to his commands, there are joys and pleasures forevermore at his right hand. He only commands us so that he can bless us. But he does command us and he does mean it. Gideon did not set up another altar to Baal or to some false god. Rather, he created his own homemade version of the worship of the one true God. He had a heart, I do believe, to point people in the right direction, but in fact he pointed them in the wrong direction because he created something God forbid and then he encouraged people to follow him in the way. And in many ways, This kind of idolatry is a more dangerous version than the outright worship of other gods because it makes very gray things that are supposed to be black and white. It's very confusing for people. It causes them to think that they're living lives that are pleasing to God when in fact they're an outrage to God. And how I pray that we will listen to this story because I'm telling you this is a diagnosis of our own hearts I've heard it said before that God created us in his image and ever since we have been returning the favor. We seek to create God in our own image. You hear people say things like, my God would never do that. My God would never say that. My God would never think that way. Well, who is your God? How do you know what he says? How do you know what he would do? How do you know how he thinks? If your mind is not shaped by the word of God with regard to the character of God, you have no basis on which to stand. God is who God is, and he alone gets to reveal who he is. And then it is incumbent upon us to submit to who he actually is, not who we want him to be. But our hearts, men, wow, are they ever prone to make God into a form that's more comfortable for us. Gideon grew up in a very idolatrous atmosphere. If you were here last week, you may remember that the altar of Baal, which he was commanded to tear down, the altar where his people worshipped a false god for many, many years, that altar was erected on the property of his own father. So this is how Gideon grew up. Imagine walking out the door of your house every day and you look out on your property and there's a huge altar to another God that other people come to to worship this false God. This is how Gideon grew up. When God grabbed hold of his life, Gideon listened to the Lord and he did a great job of facing the enemies that were without, but he utterly failed to deal with the power of the enemy that was within, namely his own idolatrous heart. And I don't know how you grew up, but I did not grow up in the church. I grew up in a very idolatrous, self-centered, self-indulgent kind of an atmosphere. 
And boy, oh boy, oh boy, I better not underestimate the power of my heart to deceive my heart into things that are not true. Even though Gideon had a kind of desire for God, he chose to worship God and lead people according to his wisdom rather than God's wisdom. And this was just so incredibly tragic. It could have been completely avoided if Gideon would simply have gone to the word of God, taken the word of God seriously, and walked according to the will and ways of God. As I said a minute ago, beloved, God only commends us because he wants to bless us. He's not trying to suppress. He's trying to bless But oh, how we think we know better than God. While Gideon was alive, the land of Israel had rest for 40 years. But as soon as he died, chaos broke out on every side. The people of Israel gave themselves to the wholesale worship of false gods. They did not remember the Lord or the amazing things that God had done to deliver them. And they did not show enduring love to the family of Gideon. And in fact, the story gets worse. We don't have time to look at chapter 9. I'll, I'll leave that to, for you to read on your own. But just to briefly summarize what happened there, after Gideon's death, one of his many sons, who was estranged from the rest of the family because he was essentially a bastard child, if you'll pardon the language, he rose up and he seized power in Israel. Gideon had refused to serve as king, but his wicked son Abimelech, whose name, by the way, means my father is king, Abi. My father, Melech, king. My father is king. He raises up. He kills all of Gideon's other sons except for one. And he becomes the king of Israel for three years. He installs himself in chaos over a people who were living in chaos. And so God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and between the people of Israel. And they ended up doing war with each other so that many of them were destroyed. And Abimelech himself was actually killed. And you will see at the end of chapter 9 how God thought about all this. Please look at chapter 9, verse 56. just want to read two verses. Chapter 9, 56. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made the evil of the men of Shechem, these are Israel, Israelite people, return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel, who is, who is Gideon. Jotham was Gideon's only surviving son. And Jotham had risen up and said to the people, he said something that really was, struck me as well. He said, listen, people, you need to listen to me so that God will listen to you. They failed to listen, but he said this anyways. He said, if you make Abimelech your king, what's going to happen is God is going to make fire go out from him against you, and God is going to make fire go out from you against him. And now at the end of chapter 9, we see that this is all true. Utter chaos is ruling in Israel, and beloved, that is period and the end of the story of Gideon's life, not Abimelech's life. This is about Gideon right here. This is about the fruits of what Gideon's behavior caused. As I have reflected on this story over the last week, I have become increasingly burdened. There's sometimes this last week, I have been so burdened, all I could do is just stop and pray to God. Because the weight of this truth landed upon me with more and more force, more and more insight. And the truth is simply this. Compromise leads to chaos. Compromise breeds chaos. Compromise always causes chaos. And unfortunately, This is the banner that flies over the life of Gideon. For a time, he submitted to the Lord and fought his external enemies according to the will and the wisdom of God. But as I said, he was was blind to his main enemy, 
his internal enemy, his own idolatrous heart. And in this way, he not only went astray, but he led many astray for year after year after decade after decade. Gideon sowed the seeds of compromise, and others reaped a harvest of chaos because of it. And I know that it's uncomfortable to think about. This is sometimes why my heart was so heavy and I had to stop and pray because I don't just see this in Gideon. I see this in me. I see compromise in me. And I see a law in the kingdom of God that the compromise in my life is going to lead to chaos not only for me but for others around me. And that breaks my heart. This is a law that's not easy to receive but it will do us well to swallow the pill because it might just help us to heal. Compromise leads to chaos. I think that a large part of this tragedy, the tragedy of this story, is that Gideon at this time was the leader of Israel. God had sent him to deliver the people. God had sent him to be the savior of the people. And instead of saving them, beloved, he ended up ensnaring them into the hands of enemies that were much stronger than the Midianites. By belief and hope and trust in the promises of God, Gideon watched God destroy a massive army And then he delivered the people of Israel over to demonic spirits that were more powerful than that army. And it's just tragic. It's tragic. This is the power of compromise. It's the consequence of compromise. Now, one very positive function of this story is that I do believe it implanted in the hearts of everyone who longed for God in Israel and after Israel, people who've read the Bible, And even us in this room now, I think as you're reading these stories, it it implants in your heart the desire for another deliverer and a greater Savior. And while it may have seemed as time went along that the deliverer of Israel would be Samson or maybe Samuel or maybe King David or maybe King Solomon or maybe the great King Hezekiah or maybe it was Isaiah the prophet or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or maybe Daniel, that amazing man of God, But the truth of the matter was that none of these men could fit the bill because each of them in their own way was broken as well. Each of them in their own way compromised as well. Each of them in their own way left a heritage of chaos as well because this is what every sinner does. It's what every sinner does. And so finally, when the time was full and the purposes of God were ripe, God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a perfectly righteous life that was completely devoid of compromise. I'll tell you what, the more I grow up in Christ and the more I just get to know him, when I sit and contemplate the fact that Jesus, not even his thoughts strayed for a single second of all the years that he lived, I just flat out admire him. Can you imagine if you sat in total silence just for 60 minutes Could you keep your thoughts from straying away from God? Every second that Jesus walked this earth, his his thought, his heart, his actions never strayed away from God the Father for a millisecond. He has this kind of deep, powerful, eternal strength. He is the perfect Savior that we have been longing for for all of our lives and indeed for so many centuries. In fact, he was so submitted to God that when God gave him an impossible command to knowingly pick up a cross and walk to the top of a hill and be nailed to that cross all the way to death, Jesus did it for the joy that was set before him. And that joy was perfect obedience to God his Father and all of the fruit that would come out of that obedience. Oh, Jesus is such a glorious Savior, beloved. In his life, 
death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we see a principle that is more than equal and polar opposite of what we see in the life of Gideon. Namely, it is this. In Jesus Christ, we learn that faithfulness leads to great fruitfulness. So in Gideon, we see that compromise leads to chaos, and it's very serious, it's very real, it's very true. In Jesus Christ, we see more than equal and opposite this truth, that his faithfulness has led to a great and eternal fruitfulness. His submission to the Father has led to salvation for all who will believe. His humility has led to victory over the greatest enemies that exist in the universe. If we look at earlier portions of Gideon's life, we see this truth in him as well because he heard the call of God and he submitted to the will of God and he walked in the ways of God and God exercised tremendous power through him and overcame enemies in ways that were indeed miraculous. But in the end, he was a broken human being and he simply did not have the internal strength to do what Christ did, namely, never to compromise. And so his life ended up giving spread to wide chaos. But in Christ, we see the truth that faithfulness leads to fruitfulness displayed perfectly and eternally, beloved. There's not a day when you're going to wake up and see the ticker going across Fox News or CNN or whatever you like listening to that says, oh no, Jesus compromised and it's all over. It will never happen. He will be faithful forever. And our hope in him has everything to do with his faithfulness to us. Beloved, the faithfulness of the Lord is something that is a a tremendous, tremendous blessing to us because our faithfulness to him now is actually found in his faithfulness to us. It seems to me like God has set two paths before us today. It seems like he is inviting us into one of two ways. Well, he's definitely inviting us into one way, but we have to make a choice. On the one side, we can walk in compromise and it will indeed lead to chaos, It's a law in the kingdom of God, or we can walk in faithfulness to God and know the fruitfulness that remains there. If we choose the first path, we need to hear from the Lord himself that we are choosing chaos for ourselves and others, no matter how skillful we are at deluding ourselves of the opposite. Sometimes when we're walking in rebellion, it seems like things aren't really that bad and like the things we're doing are really not that big of a deal. In fact, we'll think this to ourselves all the time. You know, when I'm in church, I'll agree that all this is wrong, but now that I'm here in the privacy of my own heart, I just don't see why this is such a big deal. We justify ourselves in all kinds of ways, and beloved, God says, I see you, I see the depth of your heart, and your compromise will lead to chaos. As a pastor who prays for you and loves you very much, I want to sternly and lovingly warn you away from this path, even as the Lord warns me away from this path. And I invite you to pray with me that in the secret recesses of my heart, I will not compromise. And I promise you to pray for the same. We may learn, we must learn to be aware of our idolatrous hearts and how prone they are to turn away from God. We are all plagued with like a spiritual ADD, aren't we? It's like I'm focused on Jesus. Oh, look, a squirrel. I'm focused on Jesus. Oh, look. Oh, look, oh, look, oh, look, oh, look, oh, look, oh, look, oh, look. We're just constantly looking away from him. And he wants us to look him dead in the face and stay faithful to him. And so I pray that we would be aware and that we will pray for each other. I pray that we will reject the path of compromise that leads to chaos. If we choose the second path, the path of faithfulness that leads to fruitfulness, well, then I have some very good news to bring to you today. We do not need to muster up this faithfulness inside of ourselves. In fact, we cannot. 
Rather, all we need to do is turn ourselves to Christ, look to him, believe in him, trust in him, hope in him, cling to him, and allow him to work his power in us and through us. Our faithfulness to him is his faithfulness working in us and working through us. You cannot make yourself clean over here by yourself and then bring yourself and make yourself acceptable to God. There's nothing you can do that will accomplish that. But if you will believe in Christ, you will become acceptable to God. You will become receivable to God and he will embrace you in his arms forever and ever. In a couple of weeks here, we're going to memorize a verse from John chapter 10 that says, once you are in the grip of Jesus' hands, nothing can snatch you out of his hands. And if you are in that grip, just imagine, if you have children, imagine that one of your children comes up some Sunday morning and they, you discover that they wrote a poem for you and they made a little breakfast for you. Maybe they burnt the toast and cooked the egg wrong, but they made you breakfast, they brought you a poem. And then they hand it to you and they say, Mommy and Daddy, do you love me now? And you say to your child, thank you so much for these great gifts. Come here, give me a great big hug, and I want you to know something, that I don't love you any more right this second than I did before you made me breakfast. There's nothing you can do to make me love you more than I love you right now. And you can make me a thousand breakfasts if you want, but I will always love you just the same. And this is how God is disposed toward those of us who believe in Christ Beloved, our faithfulness to him is about his faithfulness to us, and so what we must do is simply turn to him. Choosing the path of faithfulness is not about working, it's about resting in Christ. Yesterday at our church's monthly leadership meeting, Pastor Mike turned our attention to Colossians chapter 2, and though we don't have time to go there, I would really like to encourage you to read that chapter later, the whole thing, Colossians chapter 2. At the end of that chapter, Paul urges the believers of that city not to make a bunch of rules for themselves that seem to have a sort of veneer of godliness, but at the end of the day, they have no power to cause a person to overcome sin. In fact, Paul, in another place, calls these kind of rules that we make for ourselves, he calls them the teaching of demons. Legalism comes from hell, beloved. It is not a friendly kind of a thing. It's, it's kind of like what Gideon did. It has a veneer of Christianity, but in fact, it's devoid of Christ. So Jesus says, if you want to overcome, if you want to choose the path of faithfulness rather than the path of compromise, you cannot just set up a bunch of rules for yourself because you're going to fail. So then what is the answer? What does give us the power to overcome? Paul answers in Colossians chapter 3. And he says, listen, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have died with Christ and you have been risen with Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Christ in glory. Christ has done everything for you. He has died to sin for you. He has risen from the dead for you. He will appear in glory for you. And now because of that, in the rest of chapter 3, he says, now by the power of Christ, put to death the earthly junk that's inside of you and clothe yourself with the heavenly stuff. But Paul point is this. It's a work that Christ does in us, not a work that we do for Christ. And so, beloved, I urge you as a pastor who loves you very much and prays for you, I urge you to choose the second path and simply turn to Christ. This is going to take time. You're going to have to sacrifice something out of your schedule and get in a place where you can open your Bible and just be there with Jesus. Open your heart to Christ. Open your mind to Christ. Let him do his work in you. Your idols may seem so strong to you, 
Some of you are struggling with things for years and years. You feel like you'll never overcome. Well, I want to tell you that the truth of the Word of God is that your idols, as strong as they are to you, are nothing before the Lord. They're weaker than the Midianites are before the Lord. What you cannot overcome in your flesh, Christ can overcome by his presence and by his power. So choose the second path. And I urge you to pray for me, and I really mean this. I ask you to pray for me that day by day I would choose the second path, that I would simply turn toward my Savior and seek him and wait upon him and love him and then do his will by his power and by his promises. Let's pray together now that Jesus would help us in this. Father, I pray that I have been clear enough about what your word is saying today. And I pray wherever I have been confusing that you, by your spirit, would just clear up the confusion. And I pray that you would now minister your word powerfully into the hearts of your people. Father, I pray for anybody here who does not know you or who does not believe in you or who has rejected you, maybe even by their way of life, even if their words are accepting to you. Father, I pray for them that by the grace and mercy of your heart and the power of your word that you would cause them to turn back towards you, that they would look into your face and believe and receive all that you have done for them and all that you are for them. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have believed in you, who have clung to you, who have walked with you and talked with you, Lord, I pray that we would never grow weary of hearing the gospel and learning this truth that faithfulness to you is simply about resting in you. Please teach us, Jesus, how to walk away from our idols by turning our face towards your face. You promised us that we would be transformed by the sight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So teach us how to do that, I pray, day by day. I trust you for this, Jesus. I give you my thanks for this. I give you my praise for what you will do. Amen.